Hello, welcome to the FX Big Picture podcast. This is a series of podcasts where we will discuss a wide variety of topics and provide a rather different perspective from our experience experiences serving UK customers at NatWest. My name is Duncan McCabe from the UK corporate FX sales team. We have James Newman today from the Financial Institutions FX sales desk. And of course, we are joined by our FX market strategist, Neil Parker. So today we're going to talk about uh, supply chains. The last year has forced a, a thorough supply chain examination for companies. And I think we're specifically today we're going to focus on uh, resilience and uh, potential need for these uh, for supply chains to be improved, but at what cost and uh, potentially what uh, what impact on service. So Neil, I'm going to hand over to you first. Can you give an overview on the current situation? Yeah, I, I guess the the thing that we're looking at here with regard to supply chains is that. Um, not just because of COVID, but also because of a number of other factors like Brexit. A lot of businesses are looking at where things are coming from and, and, and the cost of that and the potential future cost of it. But more importantly, and I think you've already touched on this, they're looking at the resilience of supply chains. And we have a number of sort of situations looking back through history where supply chains have not proven to be as robust or as reliable as they were believed to be. Um, so consequently, I, I, I think you look at this on, on, on several separate, or from several separate perspectives. You look at the reliability uh, and robustness. You look at it in terms of price, um, but you look at it in terms of, of, of sort of future sustainability and how trends in other economies may well take some of that, 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 that sort of resilience or that, uh, that, that pricing differentials, or that pricing benefit, um, or indeed that just, just the, um, uh, the, the issues around choice away from people that are reliant on supply chains that are not domestically located. Uh, so I think people will come at this point on supply chains of should we reshore and, and how much will it cost us to reshore production? But actually, I'd be looking at this in terms of, you know, is it sensible to have supply chains that are located only in one ge ge uh, geographic region and therefore they're at risk of geopolitical uh, uh, problems? And is it, is it sensible um, to have them located in one geographic region when you've got the issues, as we've seen in the past, of, of, of that geographic region being knocked out for a number of, uh, of reasons, whether that's you know, some sort of natural disaster or some sort of man-made problem. Could that be uh, blocking a canal, for example? In yeah, man made sense, or <laughs> I mean, we're not talking about the uh, the Manchester Ship Canal in, in, in the sense I, I'm assuming we're talking about the Suez. Um, but you can, you know, you can see that th there are problems when you're reliant upon one route to market for a lot of the goods that you're shipping, um, and, and where um, alternative sources because of margins on those goods on, the, on that product being so low. Um, that the other alternative routes 
of transporting of, of sorry of transporting that good and of transportation are just not within your grasp as a, um, a, a, a you know as an importer in particular that's what we're really talking about here is imports um but of course, I mean, we, we could be looking at this in the opposite direction, given some of the global uh, trend changes that we're seeing with regard to some areas of heavy industry. So we might be talking about this in terms of supplier reliability in the opposite direction from Western uh, economies to Asia, particularly in terms of the way in which demand is changing. I think it's really interesting, this this focus on resilience. Um, it feels that the pandemic has kind of changed the mindset of many organisations from just in time to just in case, um, kind of looking at um, the resources both that they import and also the, the chains that they have already in place. Um, what I think is quite interesting in terms of this whole globalisation versus, versus nationalisation side of things is how and what this does for inflation and where these supply chains end up getting located. It feels almost in many respects that the work that Trump did years before the pandemic in terms of bringing industry back to the US kind of kicked off this process. And um, in many ways, the pandemic has made many, uh, many countries look at their own uh, weaknesses and their, their reliance on nations like China uh, and think about actually, do we need to be producing some of these things in-house? Yeah, I mean, I'd I, I just come back on that as well and, and say you've actually highlighted where the trade-off really here is. It's it's between the resilience of supply and, and the potential for uh, having multiple sources of supply over a variety of different geographic regions and price. That, 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 that's, that, that's a simple trade-off. And, and, and Neil, we can, we can almost go back through through time as, as you... Are the person that's experienced the most, the, well, the longest period of history in your life? Um, You're saying I'm old, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, once again. Um, so, <laughs> how did how do we how do we get to this point over the the, the last few years? If we go to think about the globalization history, was was it always a, a path to the to production at, at the lowest cost? How, how have we got to where we are now? Oh, great. You know, 1970s, it was made in Japan, 1980s, it was made in Taiwan and then made in China. And, and that was that, that, that was a, a price debate. That, that was only a debate over price. And you've seen changes in terms of the global supply chain that, that, that basically reduce the impact of shipping costs. You know, I, I'll use one specific example. You know, we've moved away from having... Um, really big TVs but they were they, they, they were they were both deep uh, as well as wide um, and now we've got very wide televisions but very skinny televisions you know and at the beginning that wasn't because the picture quality was better but that was because you could ship a lot more of them you know in the same container you could ship five six times the number of TVs um, but you weren't getting an improvement in quality the improvement in quality came thereafter but that was something that that helped to hold down pricing over a longer period of time. So it comes back to price again. You know, so, so there are a lot of things that have been done um, to mitigate uh, against these very long supply routes um, in order to hold down price, which has kept the production in those ge geographic regions. But, but again, going back to the, the, the sort of um, point, it does also boil down to 
price that's driven by exchange rates. And the reason why you moved away from made in Japan to made in Taiwan to made in China was down to the movement of exchange rates to, to a degree as well. You saw a, a very uh, sharp appreciation of the Japanese yen, and you saw over that same period a very sharp depreciation of the Chinese renminbi. And that's where the switch around occurred. It's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned um, foreign exchange and another one of those sort of market inputs is commodity prices um, as well. And the, it's sort of quite famously um, the, the, through the pandemic and, and, and to where, where we are today is the, the cost of a, a container and to be shipped across to to the west is is materially more expensive than than where it is some something like fivefold and so you know what what impact does that have and and, the, and potentially for the dynamics to to change um, going forward for for supply chains again you know if we look at where we were in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, but this was a trend, by the way, that was happening through the, the, the second half of 2019 and early 2020. The Baltic freight index that everybody watches in terms of shipping costs had dropped from $2,500 um, to under 500 And now it's at sort of over 3000 So you, you've seen a turnaround, but, but you know, let's, let's look at this in terms of over a longer period than just the pandemic. Um, you are seeing fresh highs, fresh sort of multi-year highs um, in in shipping costs. One of the reasons for that is because a lot of the trade is one way. You know, so you're not getting that two-way flow of goods, which means that the containers are being shipped back. So you've got a stockpile of shipping containers in Europe and in the US because stuff isn't then being piled onto those shipping containers to be shipped back to Asia. So that is a, an additional cost that's generally being paid for by those that are importing the product. They're having to pay to ship the shipping containers back. Um, and so there's going back to one of James's uh, points, there's an inflation implication here. There's an immediate inflation implication. Um, but there's, a, there's other things. You mentioned commodity prices. You know, the, the, the CRB index, which is a broad measure of commodity prices and raw material prices, is uh, has more than doubled over the course of the last 14 months. Um, so that's, an, that's another input into higher prices, which might then start, start to make people question about the other inputs that are going in to the production process. And this, again, brings us back to uh, resilience, reliability, um, and, and also um, multiple locations. You know, because prices generally are now higher, is it time to now look at investing elsewhere, not just in the same region, but elsewhere geographically, um, to give yourself more resilience in case of natural disasters or man-made disasters? So the, 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 the history of this... Um, alongside the the, the the increase in commodity prices, I think brings us to a very interesting point where you know that there's going to be inflation. Do you then add an additional piece to that inflation um, to make yourself more resilient in terms of the multiple locations that you can then draw from um, in order to, uh, to, to maintain supplies? 
and, and give yourself that 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 supplier resilience. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. I think in in the day that we, if we think about our the the consumer the, in our private lives, we we can be so so used to receiving our goods almost next day for so many different um, for so many different things, and uh, you know, by bringing um, stock or um, or supplies in uh, you know nearshoring or bringing it closer to you. Then, then that surely will add to a to a service. But I guess it, it is at what cost would that would that be achieved? And um, I wonder what I do wonder what that inflection point would be, and 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 what the impacts would be to 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 inflation and other aspects to to the consumer. I mean, if you, if you were to look at, at, at this in terms of a price elasticity perspective so 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 where does it then start to hurt you in terms of of demand for your for, for your goods i mean there is a clear difference a clear disconnect between um the, the very expensive items which likely have a a more sizable margin priced into them but not always of course um versus the um uh, versus the very cheap which has got a very small margin uh, and, and and that uh, you know, that that really sort of begs the question: How much are we, how much more would we be willing to pay to get production closer to home or even to home, um, depending on what market you're talking about? I don't think. Like, let's take clothing as an example. I don't think you're ever going to get to a position, uh, at least certainly not in the next sort of ten or fifteen years, where you're considering reshoring production of clothing. And footwear and those sorts of things. The margins aren't there. That there, there, there doesn't seem to be the, um, uh, the the elasticity as far as pricing is concerned. That means if the pricing were to uh, 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 to change, um, that there wouldn't be a significant reaction in terms of the amount demanded. Now, of course, we're talking about the demand side of the equation. Of course, there's also the supply side of the equation here as well. So I'm not convinced that, that, that we're going to get to a point in some goods where there's any realistic prospect of nearshoring production. Um, but there will be other areas and elements. We could talk about certain sectors like the car industry, um, where parts are currently uh, predominantly made in Asia and then shipped back, or they're made in lower cost um, economies and then shipped uh, closer to home, there is definitely a case to argue um, that with the changeover that we're seeing from carbon-based fuel vehicle, vehicles to battery-powered, that we may well see that production much closer to home. Um, you know, I mean, otherwise, what's the, you know, we, we hear a lot of companies talking about their corporate social responsibility and talking about their environmentally uh, 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 sustainable and, uh, and green credentials, but you're still shipping stuff from from halfway around the world. You know that doesn't make sense. Yeah, you, you're making something that, that that's much more um, environmentally friendly, or, or purportedly much more environmentally friendly, but your supply chain isn't. And that's where I think there's a potential cost, um, uh, or oh, sorry, price versus. Um, uh, sort of CSR or ESG um, trade-off, which may work in favour of prices going up 
um, in order to work to, to, to benefit the corporate social responsibility. Yeah, James, you wanted to, to come in on that. Yeah, I, I think there's some very, very valid points there. And, and thinking about how this kind of feeds back into the FX side of things, all, all this really points to is supply chain disruptions and then knock-on effects for inflation being really a more medium-term shock as opposed to a short-term one that's quickly forgotten. Um, this this really does complicate the life of central bankers who are very busy disentangling supply and demand effects, looking at cost push, demand pull, inflation, and how transitory these will be. Um, I, I think it's quite interesting if you look at, say, the US central bank, the, the Fed, are they likely to continue to re- retain their dovish bias and push back on some of the market pricing as we've seen over the last couple of weeks? And if so, does that mean that we maintain uh, the short dollar trade? Yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's a good point as well, because I think they're still looking at this uh, the latest inflation spike that we've we've been seeing in data recently over recent months, and they're saying this is cost push. This is cost push inflation. We're we're we're, we're pretty sort of okay. We, we we know how to deal with that. If you're then starting to see demand pull, and this is where again we go back to supply chain resilience, because demand I think is undoubtedly recovering faster than supply. Uh, so if you're getting some demand pull inflation because there are shortages of things and we're not used to having shortages, um, then I, I, I think um, that puts those uh, those central banks in a very tricky. Say the short dollar trade then becomes a more questionable sort of uh, uh, trade to hold. But the, the other point is, I don't think any central bank over the last 20, 25 years has experienced demand pull inflation. They've gotten out of the habit of looking for demand pull inflation because it's never been there. And there hasn't been any cost push inflation because there's been a a plethora of options with regard to, um, to, to again, supply chain resourcing. And there isn't this time. And this this actually leads me on to one other element, which is we, we are still reliant upon a China that exports a sizable proportion of its production and yet the Chinese economy is utterly transformed from where we were not just not just in the 1980s and in the early 1990s when we went through those series of devaluations of the Chinese renminbi but going back you know even to the mid 2000s the Chinese economy looks nothing like what it did then um, and there's a lot more domestic demand um, for their own production. So, so that's another thing that central banks are going to have to deal with. Dealing with a China that doesn't or is in, uh, uh, unable to export as much, you know, what, do you do, what do you do then? What do prices do then? You know, that again could lead to more demand pull because China is in of itself a bigger... The, the global economy. What do you and what do you think, Doug? Uh, well, I was I was thinking on the on on the corporate side. If um, if there is a, a pivot to alternative suppliers on um, in different countries, the consideration is again. This is probably over over, over a medium to longer term, but. So investment decision, there might there may well be investment in, in other countries, which may be a, a larger a larger transaction which is worth um, 
you know, assessing the risks and, and which kind, which country, which currency, and then also the the, the transaction elements. So it's kind of away from from the inflation story, but there will be um, in terms of for, for importers, I don't I, I don't think that there's unless there's a, a huge demand changes. I don't think there's a huge going to be a huge difference to say sterling selling. It will just be in a different mix of currencies. So let's say instead of fifty percent dollar or renminbi buying it, and and euro, there might be a there might be another another in the mix there, and there will still be the same proportion sold in sterling, for example. But I, and you did you, you also saw the the dynamics sort of post referendum result for um, the UK's um, the UK's membership of the EU. It was uh, after that. Uh, there were, you know, many companies that looked at investing in in warehouses in, in Europe or in um, new facilities or investing elsewhere. Where others decided decided against it, I think that there will be a either a, a risk accept or a risk um, that will be mitigated in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I take the point about about Brexit in terms of we saw a lot of companies looking at, at, at sort of co-locations for warehousing or even manufacturing facilities. But that was really only after the vote had been taken. That wasn't, there, there, there was, there, there was very little preparation prior to that. And, and, and there was this, I think an unwavering view the the UK would vote to to remain even when the polls closed. It's still like, well, yeah, it's going to be close, but they'll still vote to remain. And so, not a lot of work was actually done. And then there was a mad scramble. And actually, what that did is it forced up the prices of all of the facilities um, because you had a limited supply of facilities that could handle warehousing or manufacturing in the locations that that, that, that businesses wanted them to, to, to be present in. Um, and, uh, and so everybody was looking at the same stock. And, and so, that, yeah, you could look at that from a, um, uh, again, going back to the whole thing about, well, do you want to reshore? What locations do you actually have available in order to do that? And, and are you just going to push up the prices again? So yeah. I, I, I think I, I just, you know, we, we've talked a lot about sort of bringing stuff back. But what about the, the you know, is the infrastructure in Western Europe or in the Western economies um, sufficiently developed in order to be able to handle that, 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 that increase in, um, uh, in production, warehousing, distribution uh, uh, and all of that? You know, have we got enough? this is another one to throw into the mix have we got enough resilience in our energy industry have we got enough resilience with regard to, to our transportation network in order to handle that and i'd argue probably not at the moment because we're going through a change there as well which is probably going to put prices up also i, th I think the the ability for many countries to actually bring stuff back and and the relevant supply chains that they're able to um build and develop in in-house are, are largely idiosyncratic to each individual country um, as you as you as you mentioned there rail transport networks and also energy are, are two crucial considerations um, especially to take into account when you have such differences between the UK Europe the US uh, I, I think from a kind of institutional 
perspective, I, I think these are interesting things that a lot of people are looking at and how they factor one into um, the, the potential future growth longer term. Of, uh, of various economies, whether whether Europe is in a in a solid position to capitalize, given its location potentially towards resources in Africa, and whether it's able to capitalize on on its position in terms of its location, um, close to Russia, close to the close to Asia, close to the east, close to the west, and also I think it's interesting to think about how various central banks react to some of this um, cost push and demand pull inflation that we see. Each of the individual central banks have various different reaction functions, and some may see these increases in prices as more transitory than others. And therefore, there will be consequences for that. The Fed, the Bank of England, or, or the ECB, the European Central Bank, may have different reaction functions to this. And this will dictate how institutional investors look to position over the, the next few months and, and, and coming years. I think I think we can I think we can talk about this all day. It's um, <laughs> there's 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 quite a lot of uh, uh, it's quite a lot of moving parts. There's there's some some definite um, sort of key considerations and themes to to draw from this. And I think um, when you're when you're making the the decisions on um, on whether to make a change, there's there's a substantial uh, factors to to take into take into account, and um, I think if, if, Neil, have you got any closing closing remarks for this? I I I'd just say this: everybody basically beat up China, um, like with regards to the pandemic. Um, but it's worthwhile noting that China basically supplied the world with PPE. Um, you know, so. Actually, China should should, should uh, be credited with spinning up a lot of their production or moving a lot of their production away from um, what they were used to producing to to PPE equipment for the pandemic. Um, but that does beg the question, you know. Again, going back to the whole resilience thing, you know, where where is the capacity elsewhere within the uh, the Western developed economy? Um, and, and the reason I say that is because China's focus is shifting. Their focus is shifting away from supplying the rest of the world to supplying its own domestic population. Um, and that's what the, those businesses that import from China are going to have to, in, in, in my opinion, really consider when they're looking at five, 10, 15 year plans, as far as investment is concerned, that, that, that's a major consideration that, that the resilience, the robustness and the reliability of supply chains, uh, particularly from China, may be challenged, not because of China's domestic capacity to produce, but because of their demand. It's the demand side of the equation that's going to change much more rapidly. Thank you, Neil. And thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. And uh, join us again soon for the next edition. Bye.